the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Good evening. Shortly we discuss something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's basically people who are really confident that they know a lot about something almost certainly aren't. The thicker they are, basically. Along the lines that they um, they don't know how thick... They think they're smart, but they don't... They're too thick to know exactly how thick they are. This was actually made use of before it even had a term by arch satirist Christopher Morris. I've got time to play this. It's, it's three minutes long. I think it's self-explanatory. It's hilarious. You can find it on YouTube as well. Just look up Jam Parking Meters. I'll get rid of that. Okay, here we go. Um, it's a niche business. We specialise in uh, providing thick people for jobs that they're particularly good at. Um, arguments. Thick people are very good at winning arguments because they're too thick to realise that they've lost. Um, come to pick up a black Lexus. Right. Rowena's... Uh, particularly thick. She's one of our top earners. She's very good with officials. She fails to grasp anything, least of all that she's being thick. So it's not your car then, madam? No, I'm picking it up for Mr Hunter. I'm not Mr Hunter. Okay. Fill that form in for me, and that'll be £165, please. It's worth more than that. It's worth about £12,000. No, £165 is the fine you have to pay. Don't see why I should pay £165 when Mr Hunter's already paid £12,000. No, you're not... Look, I know Mr Hunter owns the car, but it was parked in a restricted area. Right. Do you know what a restricted area is? No. Well, it's an area where there are parking meters, right? Do you know what parking meters are? Yes, I know what a parking meter are. Right, and your Mr. Hunter's parking meter was over time. He hasn't got a parking meter. The one he was at. Was it a meeting? Yeah, well, his car was the parking meter and he didn't put enough money in it, right? He puts his money in the car. Well, he shouldn't put it in the parking meter. You put money in the parking... No, he puts it in a tray. No, I'm saying he didn't put enough money in the parking meter. And I just said he puts his money in the car. I'm not talking about the car. I'm talking about the parking meter, all right? What? Because he didn't put enough money in the parking meter. It's not a parking it's a car! I know! It's a fucking car, you stupid woman! For Christ's sake! All right, madam, you can take the car. Off you go. It's yours. I, I can take the car? Yes. Ooh. Thank you very much. Right. You didn't have to shout at me like that. Yeah, could you leave, please? More on this sort of thing. And in cognitive biases, we look at human statistics with Jonathan Dodd shortly. Jonathan Dodd, research director from Ipsos, ask 
they ask a lot of people what they think about stuff and we're going to tell you what the results are. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, good day, Graham. Uh, first of all, let's go internationally and a report on global reputation from its Global Reputation Centre. Uh, please do explain. Yeah. Um, well, we've got all sorts of specialist divisions at Ipsos um, that focus just on doing certain types of things, and one of them is, is reputation because um, businesses, it's important to have a good reputation. You know, it's more than just your brand. It's, it's everything that you've done before and how faithful you are at what you do and how you can be trusted and everything. And, yeah. um, and so rather, obviously there's all these surveys out there about who do you trust and what brands do you like and, and the rest of it, but we actually know, well, it, it's actually quite tough for the people that manage brands and work in companies and, and you know, the PR spin doctors that, that try and represent the brands in the best possible way. It's uh, interesting to find out what they think as well, because of course they're the ones trying to do the right thing. And there's people like you and I that just sit in here, um, you know, criticising or complimenting. So every year we interview a whole bunch of senior marketing communications people right around the world, including New Zealand. Um, like in New Zealand, we had um, in New Zealand and Trade Me and a couple of the other big companies as well. Mm -hmm. So. Um, when you ask them, say, well, what are the big issues that you're dealing with and which industries do you think are really problematic? And it was quite interesting and quite clear to see in the Asia-Pacific area, which obviously includes New Zealand and Australia, the sectors you think are probably uh, facing the biggest challenges. Which do you think those might be? Uh, well, it depends what country you're in, I, I, I would say, um, <laughs> because of industrial turmoil in one place and financial turmoil in another. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But then when you think about what we've been going through since 2008, and people are still looking at the finance sector and going, well, are you a squeaky cleaner? It was good. Have you really picked up your act? Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. In New Zealand, we like to think we're good. But when you look at the New Zealand banks that are all owned by Australia and how much the Australian banks are in trouble at the moment, yeah, um, it's clear that you know seventy three percent of these professionals in the Asia Pacific, the financial sector, was the one that was really facing the biggest challenges. That, yeah. That's where people are really questioning it. And when you see people going into Bitcoin and blockchain and everything, they're actually deciding actually I don't have to deal with a bank. Hmm. I don't want to deal with an old fashioned bank. I can completely bypass them. So the banks are actually quite worried. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah, then follow that with energy. But you're right, that's for different reasons, because if you're in a place like Australia, you know, you're talking about coal fire and, and stuff like that, whereas in New Zealand we like to think we're better with hydro. Yeah. But the, uh, this week you just had that whole issue with obviously the BP petrol price issue that, that's at the headlines. So, right, right. Yeah, 41% of all these professionals in New Zealand and Australia and Asia-Pacific going in the energy sector's got issues, and then the media, so they are. Well, that'd be a perennial, wouldn't it, I would say? <laughs> oh, no, yeah, with your Facebook problem, as, as, that, as far as yeah, that goes. If yeah, they are, yeah. are they called media, Facebook? Yeah, they are, yep, yep. You're, you're, in with, you're in with them as well. But yeah. yeah, it used to be that people were just used to always question, you know, the old-fashioned journal from newspapers, but, yeah. you know, it's Mark Zuckerberg and, and all that kind of a thing. So they've got big big media reputational um, yeah. issues too. Okay, I want to just remind people of maybe the greatest marketing miracle of all time, Skoda. <laughs> Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Yeah, they're quite cool and trendy again. The prestige. They yeah. are prestige. They have gone from being a fridge on ratty wheels and the butt of jokes along well, equal with larder. And look where they, how did they rescue that? Well, can you remember the billboard campaign they did um, when they relaunched? Not a fridge? 
Well, no. No, it was really clever because I wasn't involved in this, nothing to do with it, but you just look at this and you can work out how the, the brains have been ticking behind the scenes. Mm. Because obviously you've got a great car, and its biggest problem was that it was called a Skoda. You know, put a different badge on it and people would like it. So they had um, these campaigns, I saw them in Auckland, these billboards, and they'd have something like, um, you know, the pretty girl in front of a Skoda, and it would be like, meet Gertrude. Mm. And it would be just pointing out that, you know, it, there's more to it than just the name. Yeah. Yes, you had to meet a woman called Gertrude, you'd have something different in mind. So they really played on that. Yeah, that's why um, Mengele Agricultural Machinery, I think, still does well in Germany. Ooh. That, yeah, no kidding. No, that's his family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess mm. if they know the background. Yeah. I mean, Lamborghini started off making tractors. Yeah, of course they did. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, I'd actually, it's it's nicely explained here by, it's actually uh, one of the conservatives in America that was most worried about Trump and still remains so uh, in conversation with, uh, in a podcast with Sam Harris. Uh, he ran this thing called Any anyone but Trump and encouraged the Republicans to vote for Hillary, whether they did or not. I don't know. It's a big mix-up. But anyway, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Here we go. Oh, hang up. The twaddle tendency, yeah, it's also called. Yeah. I'm just going to let, um, uh, what's his name? Tom Nickel. You can look at These up. two social psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, did a series of tests where they figured out that the people who are least competent at something tend to be the most likely to overestimate their competence at whatever they're doing. So, you know, people that are bad writers think that they're terrific writers. And that's why they're bad writers, because they can't recognize it. Unfortunately, the Dunning-Kruger effect as a meme has spread so widely online that now I've begun to notice that mentioning the Dunning-Kruger effect is often a symptom that one is suffering from it. I don't know if you've noticed this, that people are throwing this around more or less in the direction of any ideas they don't like. Right. It's become a synonym for stupid, which it isn't. Right. The, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a very specific thing of thinking you're good at something when you're not good at something, that the worse you are at it, the less likely you are to be able to recognize it. Yeah, it's a hard thing, actually, to get your head completely around, isn't it? Well, I guess one of the key things is that it's not deliberate, generally. And that's what we talk about with all these cognitive biases. It's not deliberate. So you... There's cases like, and yes, minister is always a great example where politicians waffle just because they've got to say something, mm. and so, but they don't want to really say something. And that's deliberate, where they sort of know they've got to talk, but they don't want to give anything away. But this is where people really um, are generally trying to appear more competent and more productive. And, and we've all probably got colleagues like this or known people like this where the act of doing is, is seen as sufficient to prove that you're actually doing something that's mm. productive. And, of course, we have to do that. You know, everybody knows that there are times where um, you, you have to fake it or pretend you know what you're doing. We've all been in that situation where you've got to do something to prove that you're capable and you're productive and you're contributing. But whether you can really do it is, is another story. And, um, and we've got to do it sometimes because if your boss sits there and you're doing nothing, then you're not going to look so great. Um, and if people are expecting you to do something, you've, you've got to be able to turn up with the goods no matter how competent you feel you might be in doing it. But, of course, um, and so that, that seems fine. You know, we're evolved to try and fake it and, and put forward a good, competent impression that when we need to. But, of course, if other people are engaging in that practice and you don't recognise it and you follow what they say, that's a problem. So yep. that's a key issue. So, yep. you know, it seems great until you think, yep, they seem to know what they're doing. And, of course, the flip side is that when you're the twaddler yourself, 
you know, whether you're overstepping your, your capability or you're just desperately trying to um, trying to prove something when you, when you can't and maybe people actually follow what you believe. Um, and often we're not aware of this because we've talked about this in the past about overconfidence and what we call self-regard tendency where people tend to think they're better at something than they really are yeah. and they're more likely to see problems in other people's performance than their own. So there'll be times where we might sometimes actually end up doing something because we're expected to without realising that actually we're not doing anything really worthwhile. We're just perpetuating a problem or a fake image. So it often pays. And this is where quite often we do in business we find ourselves saying, you know what, sometimes it's a lot better and people will respect you more when you say you just don't know. To actually be honest. Go, sorry, I'm out of my debt. I need help. Can we clarify? Yeah. And, and I, I think Dun, the Dunning-Kruger effect has quite an intersection with overconfidence and narcissism, actually, that you, you really, I, you feel so confident that you know a whole bunch about stuff. It's, it really is um, a, a bit of a warning sign. Um, I find that those that really are smart um, don't say they know everything about it. They, they say yeah, there's exactly. so many areas that we don't know uh, about. And yep. they're not afraid of saying, uh, don't know. And that's the problem where we look for politicians to be decisive and knowledgeable. And so they say they absolutely believe in something and they're sure about it. And we're more likely to believe people when they seem more certain of it, regardless of the quality. One reason why I find it very hard to even like any politician of any stripe, it's because that's the way they think it is to behave. You can't say, don't know. It's a product of the system, though, isn't it? And we've talked about this. We prefer leaders that appear to know what they're doing. Well, they, they, no, they're in a position of power and confidence. They should have the balls to say so and just change it. Yeah, and there are some politicians that, that do that, but they're few and far between. Well, point to yeah. one, please. We've got 15 seconds. <laughs> no, I have to go and... <laughs> yeah, good luck. ...like Google when I search yeah. for honest politicians. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Bobby Kennedy was one. Well, where was the honest? Not in the bedroom, that's for sure. Oh, well, I don't really worry about that. <laughs> okay, hey, good stuff. Thank you very much, Jonathan Dodd from Ipsos. Our human stats this week coming up very shortly. We take you to Rotokari, uh, um Scenic Reserve. Oh, my goodness, it's a beautiful place. And it's just smack bang in the middle of cow country in Taranaki. It's hiding. We'll expose it when we return. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. News and issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. A beautiful, nearly secret little reserve. It's in South Taranaki. You can drive along rolling hills and see a lot of grass and a lot of cows. And really, you think that's... All there is, more cows and more rolling hills. Unlike some other reserves, I think of Mangatautari, that's in the middle of cow country too. Smack bang in the middle of the Waikato. But you can see it as you approach it. The Rotokari Reserve in Taranaki is unlike that because it's a valley and you don't know it's there until you arrive. I've been there recently and was well impressed, so I thought I'd get somebody from this Rotokari project on the radio and uh, get them to tell us about it. It's a great place to go visit. Uh, the bird life's pretty damn good and it's a gorgeous piece of lowland forest too, which is so rare in this country. Throughout the whole of the country, stuff that isn't being buggered up, about the size of Cornwall Park in Auckland. That's it. So this is pretty precious. 
Simon Collins is from the Rotokari Trust. Hi, Simon. How are you? Yeah, good day, Graham. How are you? Good, good, good. It was a wonderful time I spent there. So time for you to blow your own trumpet, really, in some ways. Oh, no worries. I think the uh, I think the reserve and the and the community that have inspired it uh, do do that very well indeed. So, no, absolutely terrific to have the opportunity to talk about our project. And uh, yeah, a, a perfect example of community-led conservation uh, and pride, really. It's got a fence around it. We'll tell people that f straight away. They're pretty damn expensive things. We'll talk about that, how it came about shortly. But just to address that idea, if you're going through rolling countryside of um, farms and cows and suddenly it appears, it does seem to be in uh, an unlikely place. If I was coming from the south, I'd be coming out of the Wanganui Park, Forest Park, and it might yep. not be so uh, surprising. But it is... A tiny little island in the middle of farmland, though, isn't it? How did it stay there? Yeah, it certainly is. So I guess I use the word oasis a lot. Uh, so I vividly remember when I came for a job interview in 2008 to work for the Rotokari Scenic Reserve Trust. So exactly the same impression. Rolling countryside, lots of cows, and I really started wondering whether I was ever going to find it. And then over the hill I come, and before me lies this amazing oasis of natural forest. And uh, although I couldn't hear the uh, the bird sound from my car, uh, I could I could almost imagine that it was it was full of bird noise. So the reserve was gazetted quite early, actually. The 1880s, uh, it, it was gazetted. Uh, it was for scenic. It's scenic beauty, and obviously the local community was uh, was excited about that. And somebody thought it was a great thing to preserve. You know, it's had its ups and downs uh, over the years. Most of the podocarps were felled, yeah. uh, so large por large portions of the site were also used to hold stock from time to time. And at one point, it was the only uh, it was the only track through to the Mangamingi Valley, which is the next valley inland from uh, from Rotokari. However, other areas remain largely untouched, uh, possibly partly due to it being so steep, uh, which I guess is a, is a blessing in disguise, really. Mm. Uh, and yet, yeah, it is a stunning example of lowland Taranaki swamp forest, so probably the largest, uh, the largest remaining remnant of the Nairi swamp forest. So that's really, really exciting. Oh, when I look at it, I wonder how it survived the axe. There was no shortage of industry or kilojoules expended at the end of axes and the burn-offs that happened at that time. And although, yeah, it is has steep bits, have a look at the king country. That's been completely denuded and it's steeper. It, it makes one imagine what it must have been like. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great call, and I guess uh, perhaps I draw on, on having seen old photographs from, uh, you know, close to the turn of last century of, of people enjoying the site. And, and people were going out there and enjoying its scenic beauty. I mean, we've got to, I guess, note that it was, you know, one of the few lakes in the area, and it's quite a large lake. Yeah. And, and, and so maybe that was a key draw card for, for the community at the time. How do you get there? Right, well, the easiest description is 12 kilometres east of Eltham, you will find the Rotokari Sanctuary. It's free to enter, 24-7 entry, a little bit of freedom camping, recreation, bird watching, just sit and have a picnic. And uh, so not hard to find at all, it's uh, mapped and signposted, and uh, we're, we're easy to find too, of course, so website and Facebook, uh, you know, the usual stuff. Okay. Um is there a balance between access to it and keeping it safe from predators? 
the the fence helps for people coming in and out 24/7 you're relying yeah. on a hell of a lot of diligence and goodwill from Joe public yeah we absolutely are so yeah of course it's a risk uh, particularly for rodents so rodents visit all of our vehicles I, I, I know I've had mice visit mine um, I'd just about guarantee that everybody else listening will uh, have had a rodent visit their car most people don't want to consider that of course but um, it's a bit of a yucky thought but but it's a fact that risk is also a blessing I think because every day we are threatened uh, that means that the most important thing for us is our biosecurity work and so our number one priority is making sure that we are as prepared as we can be all the time in the sanctuary. You know, trap checks, pest and predator monitoring, this is just routine, everyday work in the sanctuary. So it's labour intensive, but uh, yeah, the proof is in the pudding, right? The results, I think, are, are really evident. And one of the most important results is that fully inclusive approach to, to the sanctuary. Uh, for goodness sake, the best opportunity we've got as a community project is to share our love uh, of what we do and to share the results with, with all of the community. Um, and it's important that that's not restricted. With getting this fence in, it could be tempting, and people may think, you know, you've got your fence. It's, it's called a predator-proof fence. Great, we can go home and put our feet up. But it actually creates an increased obligation to make sure that it's being used properly, that it's doing its job and it's not wasted by a lack of vigilance seeing incursions. Oh, look, yeah, it absolutely is. And, and we'll be really quick to point out that, you know, predator-proof fence conservation sites are certainly more expensive per hectare to, to run than unfenced pest control sites. But the outcomes, if, if, if you can do it well enough, the outcomes are really, really obvious. So... I guess, you know, the backstory of the of the fence is, is quite a classic example of, of you know, how this community came to came to that thought. So when the when the trust was formed it was people interested in conservation, it was also people interested in recreation and so it was a real blend of community interests. The the aspirational goal at the time was to raise thirty thousand dollars for opossum eradication and that's probably about as far as people were thinking at the time. You know, what a lofty goal that was. So within four years, uh, well over $2 million had been raised, uh, a, a $1.9 million fence had been erected, a 12-species pest eradication had been undertaken. And, you know, I'm really proud to say that to this day, this trust and its community have managed to keep the sanctuary more or less mouse-free as well. Now, that's, uh, that's a real thing to be proud of uh, with, with the fence sanctuaries. That's a tough job. Have you had incursions? Uh, yeah, we have. I was going to say plenty. I don't think it's been plenty. We've had, I can tell you, exactly 14 rats mm -hmm. in the sanctuary since 2008. Uh, each one of those has been, has been trapped, ultimately, uh, including one pregnant female with 16 pups inside. Yeah. Uh, we've had two stoats. Both happened six months post-eradication, so this occurred in 2009. We had the stoats. Uh, and we've had periodic mouse incursions. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had a mouse incursion that sort of blew out and, and we started detecting mice throughout the sanctuary. That was a new experience for us. Uh, it was a perfect opportunity to test the resolve of the trust in the community. Everybody agreed we will not tolerate mice if we can do anything about it. So basically, we just opened up and we went, uh, we went full steam ahead into the mice and we couldn't find one afterwards. We cleared it. So we've had a couple of incursions since, but I guess we're becoming good mouse hunters. 
Oh, man, a stoke. Such a killing machine. That's all hands on deck if you get an incursion of one of them. Uh, is there any trapping outside of the perimeter fence to try and diminish the amount of opportunities that stoats will get to get in? Yeah, absolutely there is. So I guess uh, to begin with, we, we've always trapped outside around gates, you know, water, water gates and culverts, because, you know, there's, there's water that runs back and forth under the fence and, and culverts and so forth. So we're always trapping around those weaknesses. Uh, our volunteers, our staff, uh, our committee trustees, you know, they've all been trapping in their car sheds at home for years, you know, so that's another extension of that. The Halo Project... So we, we now have a, a halo around the sanctuary which, uh, working very closely with the Taranaki Kiwi Trust and the South Taranaki Forest and Bird Organisation, we've got over 4,000 hectares of, of farmland and, and bushland surrounding the sanctuary now covered in, in really dense trapping. So the, the initial driver of that was, was more to protect the spillover of wildlife. We recognised that you know, the bird life particularly was becoming abundant within the sanctuary and it was spilling over into the surrounding farmland. So we saw the opportunity to protect that spillover. We also then saw the opportunity to limit the risk of pressure on the fence. So imagine if one day, you know, we have a terrible cyclone comes through, it takes out a section of fence. If we've eliminated most of those predators within Kiwi of that spot already, the risk is much lower. So yeah, absolutely. It's an expensive project to run, the, the halo trapping work. Um, we couldn't do it without the surrounding farmers, so they are a critical part of that story. These guys are key partners in the future of what this project is doing. You have to have pretty good conservation credentials to get yourself saddleback. You've got oh. saddleback and Stitchbird, for goodness sake. Yeah, look, that's, that's just been such a thrill. Uh, I, I think the best way to tell the saddleback story initially is... You know, we, we, we started reintroducing kiwi, so we've established a genetically diverse kiwi population. The, the purpose of that ultimately is to be able to crop and translocate back to other areas within the region. That's a partnership with the Taranaki Kiwi Trust. And so the whole community comes up and says, oh, it's great to hear you're doing wonderful work with the kiwi. Uh, really, really excited. What's next for the project? Well, we're going to introduce tiaki or saddleback, and the first response was saddle what? So we released the saddleback, and then shortly after, the community response all of a sudden uh, was, was fantastic. Um, to see people learning about a bird that many of them, to be honest, no disrespect, hadn't heard of, yeah. uh, that was the ultimate success. However, yeah, after a few years, we've stopped counting. We've got well over 400 saddleback now. They're absolutely everywhere. They are starting to spill over the fence, and uh, that's a, a pretty encouraging sign. More recently, reintroducing hee-hee. Uh, that's a much more problematic bird. You know, hee-hee are very tricky, uh, with maybe three, three and a half thousand on the planet, and including Rotocari, only seven sites in the world that you can see them. Yeah. Uh, both species are highly vulnerable. They're cavity nesters. Rats and stoats will just wipe them out, you know. You get one, one rat or stoat that gets a taste for those guys, and they'll just keep hunting them. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right, we're, we're fortunate. It goes back to the basics, uh, making sure our housework is, is done well, you know, that biosecurity stuff is the priority. Yep. Without it, uh, you know, we can't protect these birds properly. When I arrived, uh, looking across the lake, it's amazing, it's, it has a lake. It's, got, it's called Rotokari, so there's a clue. Um, and 
you could just hear Saddleback up the valley. It's a very special feeling. You know, ooh, I'm in somewhere kind of special when you hear the yak, yak, yakkering of, of, of Saddleback there. Um, it's, uh, and also, I noticed a tremendous indicator, a barometer for pest control is your ordinary old tui. But it's the numbers, flocks of the freaking things, <laughs> uh, which was just marvellous. Yeah, it, it is. So they, they're a really conspicuous example of the uh, yeah, of the re, you know the regeneration of, of all of the the uh, the complex wildlife and, and biodiversity at the site. You know there there are some less conspicuous examples. Perhaps we look at Peripetus. So, you know, the lovely velvet worm, the 500-million-year-old mil carnivorous slug. Mm. What a guy. Uh, so we started monitoring uh, or searching for these guys a couple of years ago, and to our delight, we just kept stumbling, stumbling across more and more of them. So, yeah, the, the conspicuous and the, and the not-so-conspicuous has, has been amazing. Um, I guess a point to another couple of examples, perhaps the, the spotless crake, a really cryptic bird. Few of us ever get to see one. A few of us hear them. So we're starting to come across quite a few crake now. Now, they were present, obviously, before the fence was, was established, as were the Peripetus and the Tui. Uh, another example is Fernbird. Um, Fernbird, once thought of as being a wetland swamp bird, uh, are now absolutely everywhere uh, spilling over we, we're finding them nesting in farm hedges you know a wow. kilometer away it's it's incredible yeah i saw a big fat a big long ridiculous uh, giraffe weevil it's those sort of less glamorous indicators although it's a marvelous creature isn't it oh they're absolutely incredible yeah too right and, and interestingly talking about the fence it's a great place to observe uh, insect life so, and, and if you're very lucky, maybe a lizard or two. The giraffe weevils are a classic example of precisely what the conservation story is about. It really is about ecological uh, harmony, I guess. Uh, it, it, ecology is complex and, and, you know, each single species requires multiple other species. The relationships are incredible. Um, but to but to be able to teach people about this and, and get others excited about this, this is probably our ultimate dream, really. Okay. Um, on maybe a downside, it may just be aesthetic. It's really popular for jet boaty things or boats and mm. water skiers, and they tear around there making a hell of a noise. Uh, it seems anathema to the experience of walking through the bush and hearing the birds. Yeah, it does, and you know, it's always uh, it's always a topic of conversation. I guess to begin with, the you know the formation of the trust uh, began with with an informal group coming out of a, a a fairly heated public meeting actually, and so what what you had is you had a group of people that were really recognising the conservation values of the site and really wanting to address the declining state of the forest, you know, and and the lack of bird life. Then you had a group of the community that were avid water skiers, recreationalists, and these groups came together and they formed a partnership. And that partnership today is the Rotokari Scenic Reserve Trust. So, you know, if, if you're quietly looking to listen to a bird in absolute silence in the middle of summer and there's a lot of other people using the lake at times, yeah, you'll, have, you'll, you'll struggle when the boat goes past. But the point of the story really is that full inclusion model of, of community sanctuary. 
by bringing all of the community in together, we have everybody on board. If we if we exclude part of the community for one reason or another, it wouldn't matter which, which the reason was, we're missing an opportunity. And that community ownership, the community buy-in, and that, that oneness of the community is critical. So I came on board uh, from a conservation background, and, and, and that's great, but you know, I'm thrilled to bits that people are coming out here and enjoying the site for whatever it is that inspires them. And so if that's a bit of recreation by boating, if that's running around the fence line to keep fit, if that's picnicking or having a glass of wine in the evening listening to Kiwi uh, or avid bird watchers, I think, I think there's room for everybody. People may have the idea that the noise of the boats going past actually scares the birds rather than being an inconvenience to uh, those that are wanting a more tranquil experience. Is there any ecological impact with either the noise or the activity, the waves created by the boats that are going around? Yeah, good good point. There, there is a season to begin with. There is a season for power boats, and, and so the lake is closed to power boats from April through to the end of November. Right. Part of that is, is yet yeah, indeed to, to potentially give the wildlife a break. There were, there were studies done that so far produced results suggesting that there was no impact. You know, everything that was breeding around the lake bred as normal regardless. Okay. There's no other evidence to suggest that it's having a negative impact on the wildlife. I guess the best way to evidence that is to suggest that, the, that, that wildlife is absolutely abundant. You know, there's always room for more. Uh, there's always room for more research, but uh, there's certainly been no evidence to suggest that it's, it's having a negative impact. Right. It's an aesthetic thing from a human point of view. Don't, people don't need to worry. Oh, those people are scaring the saddlebacks. They're not. Oh, the saddlebacks uh, couldn't give a fig, to be quite frank. <laughs> um, and, you know, let, let's face it, the, the most perfect ecological sanctuary is one where no human ever gets to walk inside, wouldn't you agree? Um, and so every time we, we come into the picture, you know, we, we, we present certain risk. Uh, you know, we, we know all about the myrtle rust story as an example. You know, humans yeah. can carry all sorts of things that they don't know they're carrying. So there's lots of potential risks. But, the, you know, the, the opportunity with conservation, if, if we lock it up and we don't let people experience it and have that become part of their lives, then we've missed the ultimate point. Um, and, that, and that if we all don't take ownership and have a relationship with it, then, you know, what are we up to? Actually, I disagree with you in, the, um, in that, um, you know, the perfect sanctuary is somewhere where people don't go. It takes people to notice a stoat. And it yes, takes it, people to catch the buggers. The, yes, it the, does. The, yes, it the, does. the human interaction is the only reason these places can be restored to a new normal. Quite right. And I don't think this sanctuary project would have been successful or nearly as successful as, it, as it's been without the full buy-in of the community. And, and that's, again, where that blends of the conservation and the recreation values are so critical. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we've talked about the animal life. Plants, I noticed it was peculiar uh, mm. in that, man, you have so many climbers climbing over everything. The New Zealand passion fruit thing uh, and uh, New Zealand jasmine, I won't use the botanical names because um, kids are listening. No, no worries at all. Yeah, look, we're really fortunate that I guess we inherited a site that whilst it was degrading, um, you know, there was, there was still an awful lot of diversity in the, in the forest. 
we've we've really not done anything proactive about restoring the forest. Uh, we've simply removed the pest animals. That's right. all we've done. Right. It's a glorious mess. Oh, absolutely. It is a glorious mess. Mind you, we could do with a couple of less uh, superjack plants if you'd like to give us a hand with that. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, what's happened is... Uh, yeah, from a fairly open forest floor, you know, and, and lack of, uh, of you know, sub-canopy and so forth, uh, uh, it's changed. It's, it's become really thick and dense. Superjack is an obvious, uh, an obvious one. Yeah. We have around 46 kilometres of uh, monitoring infrastructure, so that's basic lines through the bush that are maintained, obviously, for, for ease of movement. And so it's a 12-month cycle of continually clipping back these lines so that, uh, so that our volunteers can get up and down all of the hills monitoring for pests. Uh, but it's been fantastic to see. One of the exciting reintroductions that, uh, that we've been working with the Department of Conservation on is, is bringing back Dactylanthus taylorii. Oh. So it's, uh, what are we talking, wood rose, uh, common name. And One of the most bizarre plants on the planet. Look, isn't it? Isn't it? A little, a little bit like the Peripetus. It's just such a wonderful story. So this is a parasitic plant that, uh, that you hardly ever see. Very few people would even recognise it if they walked, walked over top of it. And yet it's, it's such a wonder of, the, you know, of our ecology. It lives underground, has no leaves, and all it does is flower just above the earth. Absolutely, that's it to a T, yeah. yeah. Weird. Yeah, totally. So we've been working on trying to re-establish Dactylanthus. It, it, it's a several-year process. Uh, we're anticipating it may take as many as seven years before we know if any of the seed that we've sown uh, has been successful ultimately. Right. Well, that's uh, an invite to bats. Yes. So we do, we do have long-tailed bats here. Oh, God, do you? We do, and so we are working slowly towards understanding that... Uh, uh, that a little bit, a little bit more closely. We're we're fortunate that nearby there's also large areas of forest, and so you know bats have hung on in the in these parts, and uh, that's yeah that's such a thrill. Okay, I just like to tell people it's a flat, easy walk too. Um, yeah, we've talked about hills, haven't we? But the wa the walk around the lake edge is is a really nice, gentle four kilometre wander. Yeah. Um, the views of the lake are stunning, and some amazing examples of 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 swamp forest, you know, incredible kahakatea trees still still remaining. That's, uh, you know, that's such a sight. Stumbled across a robin, as you do. Oh, we went hunting together. I, I just pecked a little at the side of the, uh, or, or into the dirt at the side of the track. Not, not a lot. I wasn't destroying stuff. It came up and <laughs> it grabbed a worm out of it. Oh, that's, yeah, that's terrific. So rob robins, we suspect that there were robins in fact, we know that there were robins here before the uh, before the fence was completed and the pest eradication. Yeah. Uh, we suspect that the that the very small number of robins that were here may have succumbed to to the eradication. We're un it's unclear. Okay. Uh, however, uh, by 2010, you know, a couple of years after the the eradication, uh, we started seeing robins again. So essentially, self reintroducing. Uh, from nearby forests. Those numbers grew very slowly over the years, but we were concerned about, you know, possible genetic bottleneck, you know, and, yeah. and uh, possibly coming from as little as one or two founders. Recently, uh, in partnership with the Bushy Park Sanctuary near, near Whanganui, uh, we translocated some robins from, from that, that sanctuary, and my gosh, it's just been diabolical how quickly they've spread. 
Uh, we've got Robins for Africa, as it were. Brilliant. Yeah, totally. I did a little recording at your place in the forest. Right. Let's have a listen to some bird sound. I, I didn't grab them all. And as always happens, you go, oh, that's really good bird song. And just press record and half of them shut up. <laughs> uh, anyway, here we go. Can you hear that? Not really, sorry. Oh, okay. Try that. Oh, there we go, yep. So, bellbird. There's Tui there. Yeah. Sounds like a grumpy Tui. Yeah, and there was uh, Saddleback flew past. I think I can hear some Saddleback in the background there. Yep. I think they start yakking soon. Yep, there we go. Yeah, definitely. The stitch bird might not... I'm, I'm probably d too deaf to hear the stitch bird on the recording, but it's not bad. No, look, I think that's, I think that's pretty great. Uh, that, that's, that's the start of, of restoring our biodiversity, isn't it, is, is thinking about that bird song. Yeah. Um, you know, the cacophony that Captain Cook, I think, describes, it's got to be part of our goal, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I get to turn up to work every day at a sanctuary that sounds like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, there have been times where I've been taking people for a walk around the lake and actually we've had to stop talking because we wound up at the wrong spot. The birds were way too busy talking and having arguments. <laughs> and, you know, that's such a thrill. Yeah. I don't really remember that in a lot of places growing up as a lad. No. Uh, I, I remember what the forest looks like, but I, I don't really recall that that really intense sound of bird call. And even today when I go walking in some places, uh, I'm gobsmacked by the lack of the lack of noise, you yep. know? Yeah, That's um, why I was very impressed with Rotokari, the, just the level of sound. It's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an achievement. So thank you very much simon collins from rotokari reserve go there at once if you can they have night tours as well when do you do night tours yeah so we usually do night tours july and august i guess the key purpose is for us to again you know think about those those less conspicuous parts of our of our wildlife uh abundance of wetter rotokari is a good example uh you know some of the flatworms the geckos it's it's just terrific and, and it's really important that we share that we share this with the whole community and that's a really great way to do it. So if people are interested, uh, they can they can find our website um, or go to our Facebook page or give us a call, 06 764 uh, Really keen to share what we do. Oh, great. That's the number I got you on. Excellent. <laughs> hey, good one. Thank you, Simon, and uh, to the whole team, really, uh, you, that you're representing. Um, well done for creating a bit of a new normal there. Yeah, thank you, Graham, and thanks for the time. As, again, I said earlier, you know, we really appreciate the opportunity to tell the story. Uh, from my perspective, I, I'm just so thrilled and proud to be working with such a passionate community. Uh, you know, so my uh, th thanks goes to the whole community that have made this possible. Uh, every, everybody that plays their part is huge. And community volunteers, 
big ups to community volunteers. These guys are incredible. Yeah. I'm also envious you're not far away from one of the best pies in the world as well. God, the Kiwi Cafe at um, Englewood. God. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a firm favourite when uh, when we're travelling to or from New Plymouth, definitely, and my son makes sure that I, uh, I'm aware if I've forgotten to stop. Well, that's it. You've got to go now. You're making me hungry. <laughs> Good stuff. Hey, great to talk with you, Graham. Really appreciate it. Appreciate uh, your time too. Thank you very much. Simon Good Collins. Day. with Dock Edge Festival, New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Alex Chilton's band Big Star had an album released in 1978, even though it was recorded in 1974, I think, and they'd broken up. Oh, man, is it loved in certain circles. Big Star's album Third is what we're looking at with Grant Smithy's After New Sport and Weather. <laughs> 